listening to right where you are sitting now. Hi there, welcome to episode 36 of Sitting Now. Um, I'm your host, Ken Eakins, and joining me is a new character to the uh, Sitting Now ensemble, <laughs> uh, Mr. Ulysses Black. Hello, sir. Good evening. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and why you're joining us tonight? Um, I'm a uh, performance artist based in Brighton and um, I've been engaged in various magical pursuits coming from a more ceremonial magical background but recently shifted into more of an experimental kind of uh, angle uh, which seems to tie in particularly well with uh, our guest speaker this evening. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, so one thing before we quickly cut to the advert break is if you subscribe to our feed via iTunes or whatever podcast you use, you may have noticed that we've... uh, We've put a video your way, which is obviously a bit different from what you normally get, which is an audio file. Uh, yeah, we're going to be launching something called Sitting Now TV. Now, we've had a lot of emails from people saying, asking us, oh, are we cancelling the podcast? No, no, we're not. <laughs> um, it's just that we quite fancy doing a video version of the podcast as well. So it will be complimentary, if anything. So that's uh, something to look Brilliant. forward to. Anyway, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's roll to our, to our ads now and we'll come back after that. Airy Radio. Opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad King. This Week in Tech. Warren Town Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Exit 50. This and That with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on Psychiatry. Web Hosting Show. Merlin from Berlin. Random Cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to Do Stuff. <laughs> Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. And we're back. Uh, so who do we have on this week, Mr. Black? Well, this evening we've got Ontario Alley. A, uh, an American chap who's been involved with a subject called paratheatre um, over the last few years, well, quite a few years, about 20 years. And for myself, it's uh, really down my neck of the wood for this idea that um, ritual isn't something that is studied in textbooks. It's not something that is necessarily drummed up with pentacles and magical names of God and things like that, but is in fact a, a series of actions and gestures and uh, things that we engage with for the effects of altering our perception. 
something I'm very interested in. I'm very keen to uh, talk to Antero about it mm. because uh, it's something I've been, yeah, I've been pursuing myself for a long time and I've only recently found out that someone of his nature has actually been up to it for the last 25 years. <laughs> Always a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? I'll tell yeah. you what you can do, you're going to talk to him. Yeah, exactly. So in this episode, we're going to try also to talk to Antero about... Um, uh, Timothy Leary and most importantly the 8th Circuit model which is uh, something that we should have really broached on this show 36 episodes in but you know <laughs> you definitely think by now we would have mentioned it's a bit like the Wilson show it took us 23 episodes to get to that but oh well but anyway yeah so uh, enjoy the interview and we'll talk to you afterwards bye thanks Antara Ali, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, could you uh, give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Well, I'm, um, I'm a theater rat from way back. Um, back in the, oh gosh, early 70s, throughout the 80s, I wrote and directed plays. And this was long before I wrote any books or got involved in the Eighth Circuit Brain or any of the Robert Anton Wilson stuff. And I'm still pretty much involved in, uh, you know, variations of the theatrical experiment, um, and uh, since, oh gosh, uh, 1993, I've been um, busy um, uh, producing uh, feature-length art films, um, some of which are distributed at OriginalFalconPress.com and also my own website, VerticalPool.com. Um, and just recently, um, uh, I wrote my uh, eighth book called The Eighth Circuit Brain, Navigational Strategies for the Energetic Body. Um, and that's um, a kind of, well, what that does is advances the knowledge um, and the experiment that I introduced in my first book, Angel Tech, which was first published in, back in 1985, you know, so we're going back there. And the new book advances um, uh, the knowledge into a more um, pragmatic, um, uh, practical application because within that book is an entire eight-week course of study that if people want to take it seriously for eight weeks, go through a training process, um, uh, enabling them to begin accessing the various uh, states of consciousness, energies, forces, uh, symbolized by the um, uh, eight-circuit brain model. Okay, so I, w- I want to sort of kind of start off by talking about uh, Dr. Timothy Leary with you a little bit, something that we've been meaning to talk about on the show quite a bit, but never really kind of, uh, haven't really got around to it yet, I suppose. So I was wondering, like, the, a good way to maybe start this is asking, how did you kind of, uh, you know, hear of Timothy Leary? What kind of got you into it, as it were? Well, I think, um, you know, I was um, uh, part of the 60s revolution. I'm 57 right now. And, you know, like me and everybody else back in the 60s, knew what Timothy Leary, you know, what he did and what he was about, and basically, you know, in his vision of pushing expanded consciousness through the experimentation with LSD. Um, I didn't really begin reading 
his serious contributions uh, in his books until probably in the, um, I want to say, in the early 80s. And many people know of Leary, obviously, because, you know, being the high priest of LSD and, you know, the tremendous amount of kind of uh, negative press, really, that he's gotten over the years, um, back then as well as currently. It's just a lot of people have a, have a problem with Tim Leary. But um, uh, that have not read his actual books, and I, I have I discovered that his seminal contribution was not actually, uh, you know, LSD and the propagation of you know that kind of expanded consciousness through pharmaceuticals, but um, his Eighth Circuit brain model, um, which uh, he developed and refined over about ten years, and then produced in his opus, which he called at that time Exopsychology. Uh, which was later updated to Info Psychology. That's a book. Mm. And when I read that, um, well, actually, Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger uh, led me to Timothy Leary because in Cosmic Trigger, Bob Wilson mentions uh, the Eight Circuit Brain Model. And when I first laid my eyes on it, um, I was quite astonished. Uh, I had no idea that something like that even existed. And, and so I just decided to read up as much as I could on the Eight Circuit Model and when I read um, Leary's work on it, I realized, well, as brilliant as Leary was, uh, there was not a whole lot of application of the theory into action and experiment and you know real-time experience. So I thought, well, hmm, maybe maybe a book needs to be written um, advancing Leary's theory into praxis into practical application. Hmm. And Bob Wilson sort of beat me to the punch in eighty. Four with uh, Prometheus Rising, but he he focused more on a kind of um, multiple systems theory where he, you know, with, you know, as you know, Bob Wilson's got this encyclopedic brain that enab- enables him to draw all manner of associations and links between all manner of esoteric as well as scientific systems. And still, um, you know, he didn't really advance it as fully as I thought it could, meaning the Eighth Circuit Brain Model, into praxis, into some way in which, you know, the average reader might be able to um, begin experiencing some of these states of consciousness and these kinds of wild, um, you know, uh, uh, energies uh, that the Eighth Circuit Brain Model, in a sense, symbolizes. And so that's why I wrote Angel Tech, and it finally came out in 85, um, to advance that theory into practice and application. And then... um, at that time, I didn't, you know, know Timothy Leary, and I, I, I sent a, a preliminary manuscript to Leary, uh, where he was living in Los Angeles, Los Angeles at the time, totally not expecting any response, because I was a complete unknown, and, you know, I was probably just another whippersnapper that was thinking that they could uh, advance Timothy Leary's theory. <laughs> and so um, I was very surprised when I got an endorsement written by Leary, uh, to help me push the book and get it out there. And, um, and so, you know, from there it went from a self-published event to um, a publication with Falcon Press in um, 1986. And then I met Leary briefly for dinner, and um, we, we had a few words. We shared some uh, interesting uh, observations, and uh, I just found him to be an incredibly intelligent, um, humorous, really funny person. Um, and I was just, uh, I just felt kind of, in a sense, as young as I was, then. I think I was, you know, 20, 
no, I was 30, I was 29 or 30, around there. Hmm. Um, I was just surprised to be sitting next to Timothy Weary just, uh, you know, uh, a couple months after he had sent me his endorsement. It was just one of those um, aha moments, you know, where you can't believe what's happening, and yet there it is, it's happening. Yeah, I hear Timothy Leary was quite, um, uh, I can't think of the word, quite affable. Lots of people liked him. He was a very uh, sociable kind of guy. Is, is this true? I did I, he always seems quite a kind of uh, charismatic, kind of outgoing kind of character, which is kind of strange for often for that kind it, of it, personality. It's, it's it's true, you know, and his personality in many ways um, got him into trouble, uh, meaning that a lot of attention was put on his personality, and people forgot to actually um, read, um, you know, what his brain was outputting onto paper uh, in terms of you know a particular eight circuit brain model and other particular um, typologies and systems that he had developed that was actually um, used in the United States prison systems to categorize uh, prisoners, you know, incoming prisoners, as you know, to determine whether they were minimum threat or maximum security candidates. And Weary, when he was finally caught, because he went into exile, um, you know, the government was chasing him around the planet, and finally he was brought back to prison. He was given the test in the prison that he himself wrote 20 years <laughs> <Yeah>. ago previously. <laughs> and so he knew exactly the right answers to put on that test to create the illusion that he was a minimum security threat. Mm. And so they put him into the minimum security threat, you know, sector. And, you know, within a couple months, he walked free. He escaped. Mm. Uh, and that's typical Leary. There's, there's a kind of a real, a kind of a uh, leprechaun spirit of high mischief about him that um, uh, I just find hilarious and, you know, really quite brilliant. The uh, Leary sort of connection with you, you were saying, was sort of happening around the mid-80s. And I'm just wondering whether you, as uh, were you already uh, established or sort of identifying yourself as a, a theatre practitioner of one form or another at this time and sort of considering your own, uh, what you could contribute to the Eight Circuit model through your own sort of understanding of theatre practice or power theatre practice? Or was that sort of new territory for you at the same time? Well, it was a bit of both. Um, when I say theatre, I want to uh, reiterate that... Uh, yeah, I think this would be a really good... Uh, sorry, I think it would be a really good yeah, thing just to sort of clarify the, the quite clear very distinction. Very much, because, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to a couple of Brits here, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, theatre is a very big deal in, Brit in, in England. Um, the vein of theatre that I've been pursuing for the most of my life has been in the vein of experimental theatre. And mostly... Um, works that I have actually written and directed myself, um, one-act plays, two-act plays, um, also paratheatrical experiments that uh, used, uh, um, uh, that borrowed text from, you know, various poets like Coleridge, uh, Rilke, um, as a means to express particular theatrical conventions. And I'm also very involved in um, uh, a line of work that Jerzy Grotowski, uh, the late Polish yeah. theater director, uh, instigated back in the late 70s called paratheater. Um, and uh, paratheater is something that he, he, he coined the term basically back then to describe work that he was doing with actors and non-actors alike in the forests of Poland, um, where they were not really pursuing processes of acting, but really um, pursuing processes of being and um, a kind of self-revealing process uh, enabling a certain kind of spontaneous um, exploration of, of ritual. 
I think one, and, of the, one of the particularly nice things that seemed to have been emerging around that time, particularly with Grotowski's stuff, was the um, the question of the presence of an audience and whether an audience is actually necessary for the paratheatrical work to take place. Well, that's exactly right. The the work I've been doing for the last 30 years, the paratheater work that I've been facilitating in groups, 80% of it over the last 30 years has been behind closed doors without an audience. Um, and though it the medium, the paratheater medium where I work in, it does combine techniques of theater, uh, dance, um, uh, vocal work, as well as um, uh, zazen uh, meditation uh, principles. Um, for the most part, the aim of the work is to in, in, increase the force of commitment to performing the action so that the action, whatever that action is, has a greater impact on the doer, on the one performing it. And so we're not really performing again for an audience, and so the pressure to perform is really released, and yeah. it's replaced by self-created pressures um, to build a kind of internal uh, commitment to uh, verticality, is what I call it. Also, Grotowski refers to that process of uh, uh, qualities of... Um, qualities and colors, um, information and energy coming down from above and also coming up from below as in a kind of a vertical plumb line that includes the spine and the human body as a, um, a central pivot. Just thinking back to then, because I know uh, my colleague here wants to have a bit more of a probe around the eight circuit model then. Speaking, verticality is perhaps a good uh, cut back into that subject. You, you did mention a few things that I would really like to talk about, perhaps in a bit, some of the Zazen meditation and... Uh, so forth. But um, in terms of this sort of personal development, I, I note on somewhere I believe I read on your website that what your work isn't uh, therapy, as such. No, so, no, uh, no. There's we, a sort we, of a different a different type type of take, which may be similar to what Leary was trying to uh, achieve with the eight circuit model, where uh, less of therapy and more a sort of development. Yeah, that it, be right? it's no, it, it's not group therapy, nor do I, you know, play role of therapist. Um, the work we do is a very highly rigorous physical medium. So you have to be in a very good physical shape just to do it. And you have to, in order to do this work, you have to have in some ways um, fulfilled your basic survival needs, whether it's your physical survival needs for shelter, but also your emotional survival needs for friends and emotional support outside of the lab situation because we're not really looking to build within this work a, um, a social um, climate of uh, interaction um, and, and so it really is set apart from anything that might resemble psychodrama or group therapy sure. or psychotherapy of any kind and, and, and the main thing that sets it apart is um, just the high level of commitment and discipline um, uh, required to um, if only to meet the body's central need in what we're doing that's a very physical medium and the body's central need being to be felt very deeply um, and again, so, you know, if, if someone is, let's say, 40 or 50 pounds overweight, they wouldn't, they wouldn't last, you know, through a three-hour session of what we do, and we work, you know, two, three-hour sessions a week for 12 weeks at a time. Uh, one, thing we've, one thing we've been um, talking about a little bit that our listeners may not be actually that familiar with is the, is the eight-circuit model itself. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about the history of the eight-circuit model? I know there's some kind of controversy as to whether 
Leary was the actual uh, inventor of this term. Well, yeah, um, just to kind of uh, finish a thought, I was uh, just, just about to finish, and that is in, in the new book, my new book, The Eighth Circuit Brain, um, mm. out on vertical pool publishing. Um, I actually introduce techniques of paratheater um, in the eight-week course that is planted right in the center of that book um, for people to experiment with as a tool, as a means to engage the states of energy represented by the um, eight functions of intelligence uh, that the Eighth Circuit um, uh, symbolizes. As for the origin of the Eighth Circuit brain, there's been a lot of um, questioning around that. Uh, many people who have just heard about it uh, assume that Leary made it up, whereas um, if you have one of Leary's earlier books, it's called What Does Woman Want? In the preface of that book, Leary um, confesses to receiving the prototype for the Eighth Circuit Brain Model from um, a certain Professor Adams, and I don't know if that's his real name or not, um, because it, it seemed to me when reading it that this Professor Adams person wanted anonymity. And Leary was um, at Millbrook, this was in the early 60s, as Millbrook Estates, where um, he was still teaching at Harvard, and uh, Richard Alpert was there, Ralph Messner was there, you know, all the, um, you know, the Leary clan and family and friends of family all lived in this big estate at Millbrook, and this uh, Rutgers scholar, scholar from Rutgers University, um, scholar in uh, religious and Hindu studies, uh, showed up and for a week um, walked around the um, the land there at uh, Millbrook, uh, uh, basically sharing an oral transmission of an ancient um, uh, esoteric Hindu um, uh, vision um, of, of, of the chakra system. And, and I mentioned that it's an ancient esoteric version as an oral transmission because what Leary received then I don't think is written about in books, um, but really came to him as an oral transmission. And Leary at the time, um, you know, uh, one of Leary's nicknames at uh, Harvard was Theory Leary. <laughs> And you know, so he was a you know he was a theorist, and he was really quite good at um, producing reams and reams of theories. And so here was this fellow from Rutgers University, a scholar nonetheless, um, who shares an oral transmission that includes not only theory but um, a heavy transmission of probably some quality of energy signal, uh, some intuitive link to what he was talking about. And I think it just must have really. Uh, blown Timothy Leary's mind because it really spun him into a, a whole line of experimentation of updating that ancient esoteric system into a model using um, contemporary terms like you know circuit for example you know with the on he knew that the computer age was coming so I'm thinking you know that the word circuit he was using that as a way to upgrade and bring things up to date a little bit. And perhaps not to and rely so that's, on... Uh, that's, that's where it uh, started, as, as far as I know. And then from there, the rest is history, you know, because Leary worked on it for about 10 years before writing Exopsychology. And then uh, seven or eight years after that, uh, Bob Wilson came out with Prometheus Rising, and then two years after that, I came out with Angel Tech. Um, one thing, I, uh, I know this might be a bit tedious, if, <laughs> but I'm not sure, but uh, could we perhaps maybe just briefly go through the eight, circuits as it were maybe just have a look at the different the, the sort of tensions and differences between them um, starting with maybe with the bio survival circuit well sure um 
Leary, Wilson, and I have uh, slightly different uh, terms or definitions of the eight circuits. Uh, they're not that different, but I'll give you. I'll share you mine since you know you're talking to me at this time. Yeah. <laughs> the circuits, of course. Um, there's no circuits that exist within the human system. The circuits is a is a term. It's a word. It's a symbol that represents processes of consciousness and human experience. And so, if if you remember that, it's important because then you can distinguish between the map and the territory. And the Eighth Circuit Brain System is, is ideally a map that helps you engage the territory of eight functions of intelligence. And it's almost like as if there are eight brains within us, and all eight brains exist within each individual at various degrees of expression and latency. And these brains are also talking to each other. There's a constant interaction. And, you know, sometimes when people undergo, um, you know, an LSD experiment or they're eating magic mushrooms or have some kind of expanded consciousness experiment, um, they can begin tuning into uh, the interaction of these circuits uh, just naturally. That they, you know, where, you know, the three-dimensional veils of consciousness are lifted and we begin to see the multi-dimensional nature of our very existence. So with that said, um, first circuit involves physical intelligence and it pretty much is driven by uh, the need for shelter, food, um, and protection and self-preservation. And basically, uh, any, anybody you know, can increase their physical intelligence um, if they can figure out how to um, get their survival act together and um, feed themselves or at least um, you know, find some way to uh, continue eating and uh, in many ways to also... Um, be ready to defend themselves in, in the face of uh, physical threat or extinction. So the, the first um, uh, uh, circuit is very much about uh, physical survival, how to figure out how to survive physically on the planet. Mm. Second circuit is emotional survival. And there we get into a more complex process of uh, coming to terms with, well, what does it mean to win and lose? And what does it mean to gain status, and you know, here we have the natural sense of pecking order that we sometimes experience, whether it's at the university or at our particular job, or you know, sometimes in interpersonal relationships, you have this kind of one up, one down, and mm. you know, people are trying to win and people are trying to avoid losing, and you know, it's an emotional uh, territory, the second circuit, um, and it, you know, it basically um, <clears throat> is driven by the fulfillment of, of our of our emotional needs. The third circuit, called the semantic or symbolic circuit, refers to um, conceptual survival. And this is basically um, uh, achieved by figuring out, um, you know, how to um, uh, solve problems, uh, also uh, how to um, uh, maintain your sanity, um, which is a conceptual survival issue for us all, uh, living in a mad world. Would it be fair to say that this was the point at which your paratheater starts would start integrating with the Eighth Circuit, having said beforehand that um, you know people that are overweight would need to sort that out first, sort of thing? You know, it's very different for each person. Sometimes people come into the paratheater work because they need um, their, their, upper, their upper circuits are wide open and, in a sense, they're in a sense psychically out of control, and they're looking for a way to manage their energy and to embody themselves more because they more or less are walking around in a quasi disembodied state and so the paratheater work forces one into the into a physical expression 
of whatever states of energy that you might be experiencing. So it really differs depending on the individual. Are they in fact? Are they actually sort of not? Uh, are they two structures or systems of uh, of sort of action that are perhaps don't tie in quite as I might have assumed to say that the power theatre sort of starts fitting in at a certain point or is power theatre work more of a sort of syllabus that is engaging perhaps all eight circuits? Well, power theatre work, um, in a sense, provides the lab where the experiments occur. And even though I don't bring the eight circuit model into the power theatre work itself, um, because the very nature of power theatre work is post-symbolic, it's it's not about following maps or trying to fit things in or make sense. It's really about how to restore the capacity for direct experience in a world where society has, um, in some ways, moved us all towards a greater depersonalization. Um, and so in the paratheater work, uh, there's certainly um, opportunities to access all eight circuits of intelligence. Um, but and, you're, not, and by, you're not sort of binding yourself to that particular model uh yeah, as no, a, no, I'm, I'm not, you know, bound to any model. Um, I'm, you know, I'm bound to the um, emergence of autonomy and integrity uh, in myself and the people I work with and anybody else that is interested in um, developing integrity and autonomy in their lives. That, that's pretty much my dogma. It's <laughs> a pretty good one. So I, th- I think we were um, up to the domestic circuit. So I was wondering if you could... Yeah, fourth yeah. circuit that I call social intelligence and... Uh, Social intelligence refers, it's a very complex um, level because it really does incorporate the previous three circuits into itself, and it forms this whole new blossoming that psychologists call personality. Hmm. And so the development of personality pretty much, you know, depends on um, the integration of physical, emotional, and conceptual intelligence so that you can mingle and mix with people, know how to talk to them, you know, know how to get along know how to um, determine who you're attracted to, you know, who has the power, knowing who you feel safe around. These are all, you know, circuit one, two, and three imperatives. Um, and so the social intelligence is increased by the degree that you're able to get along with, you know, a greater variety of people. Mm-hmm. And the most socially intelligent, you know, people on the planet are the ones that get along with the most you know, a greater variety of individuals, uh, regardless of their personality types. Mm. And the most uh, socially uh, ignorant people, like for myself, I, I, you know, come from a history of social idiocy. And so I had to really learn how to increase my social intelligence. And once I realized that I was a social idiot, it was a lot easier for me to, like, move forward because, you know, I, I really wanted, I didn't want to isolate myself in the world and I didn't want to just be this, you know, rigid old man that would uh, not be able to get along with hardly anybody beyond, you know, a few people. So, you know, I took it upon myself to increase my social intelligence by mixing with as many different people as I possibly could. And this led to, um, you know, the teamwork processes of filmmaking and the teamwork processes of creating theater and the teamwork processes of para-theater work. Um, you know, which helps me stay socially honest and, um, you know, maintain some integrity in my relationships with people socially. The social intelligence circuit also, um, it's going to involve, um, you know, morality and questions of ethics and to whatever degree that you have, um, you know, really started to define your own ethical code or whether you're still regurgitating the the morality 
that you absorbed and inherited from your parents and, you know, your church and society at large. So next up, I think it's the neurosemantic circuit. Yes, yes, the somatic circuit. Somatic circuit. Sorry, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, neurosomatic is, is Leary's term, and I think it's a good one, too, because uh, Leary uses the word neuro in a very specific way. He, he uses it throughout his writings, and it refers to the, um, uh, you know, the word neuron, and the neuron, as we know in you know biology 101, is the, is our most basic biological unit of intelligence, um, and and it has a, a tertiary capacity for um, absorbing, storing, and transmitting um, information and energy. And Weary, um, uh, I think, was uh, quite brilliant in deciding that that was a really good definition of intelligence: our capacity to absorb store or integrate and transmit um, what it is that we're experiencing. And so this kind of trinary model of absorb, integrate, and transmit really serves as uh, a working model for anybody wanting to increase their intelligence in any of the eight circuits. You just have to find a way to fully absorb, integrate, and transmit the experiences that uh, each of the eight circuits symbolize. So speaking of this sort of finding a way to absorb and transmit, you were saying that uh, Leary's stuff is very heavy on the theory and not so heavy on the practice. How do, how do you see the, um, the practice of that sort of uh, operation beginning to occur for people? Well, um, it, it's not necessarily beginning to occur to people. Uh, some people are more prone to applying theory and other people you know, tend to be maybe more like Leary's personality type who are more theoretical by nature and they don't want to do anything about it. They just yeah, want to have the knowledge in their hands. Hmm. So those people that are actually motivated or let's say maybe have a more pragmatic or action-oriented bias, you know, some people have a more action-oriented bias, meaning that they're not going to buy into something. They're not going to believe something is true unless they can apply it. And that would be my, my type of person. I'm, I'm more philosophically pragmatic. I tend not to take any theory seriously unless I can find some use, for, use or you know, application for it. And that's both my limitation and my strength. So I think um, next up's the uh, metaprogram. It's the neuroelectric circuit, isn't it? Well, the, the fifth circuit, I just wanted to add a couple things to, okay, and that cool. is it's a, it's, it's a very... Um, um, it, it, it's, it's a circuit that uh, opens naturally enough when um, you have figured out how to um, either um, uh, through drugs or through um, diligent self-work um, to bypass the guilt complexes of the fourth circuit and enter into a guilt-free experience of life. Mm. And so when you're guilt-free, there's a natural state of bliss right there waiting for you. The fifth circuit simply represents your capacity to live in present time. And, you know, as you know, you know if, you're, if you're racked by guilt or if you have, you know, a big morality that you're struggling with, it's very hard to live in the present. You know, there's always some kind of concern about whether you're doing the right thing or whether you're going to be doing the right thing later or some kind of regret about what you did, you know, yesterday or whatever. So the fifth circuit is really opened up by the um, liberation to live in the present time. And it's in that here and now modality that sometimes comes naturally, like when you smoke pot or even, let's say, when you fall in love. You know, all of a sudden, the world is wonderful. Everything is beautiful. And, you know, there's, there's nothing you need, you know, except just to 
be with the beloved. Mm. You know, there's that sense of just being open, being here now. <clears throat> so the Fifth Circuit is, is very simple, but also very profound that way. And it can be integrated by various um, yogic practices, um, uh, tantric practices, and certain ritual practices um, uh, that are able to um, uh, stabilize the rapture or the bliss so that it lasts longer, um, you know, before it disperses and, you know, brings people into this place of spacing out. You know, it's like the pothead, someone that smokes, smokes pot all the time, they'll only remain high for so long and then they just start getting spaced out and they start forgetting things and they lose their motivation or their consciousness fragments or something like that. So, you know, uh, that would be an example of, of an unintegrated fifth circuit where there's too much absorption of bliss. Mm. Would you say that the models presented by the eight circuits would uh, give the individual in that sort of situation a syllabus with which they could then begin to work with those experiences? Absolutely, yeah. No, the, the eight circuit brain model, I think, is one of the um, most effective um, grids or um, uh, structures um, to apply to any life or any pursuit of expanded consciousness if people are really, you know, motivated to break out of the shell of their preconditioned lives and, you know, all the things they were taught in school or by their parents or by society. I think the Eighth Circuit Brain Model is a really great map um, to enter uh, terra incognita, um, you know, the unknown uh, strata of um, what it means to be a human being. Excellent. So I think the next circuit, like we said earlier, was uh, to do with metaprogramming, and uh, it's the neuroelectric circuit, I believe. Yeah, yeah, the neuroelectric circuit um, um, I call psychic intelligence. And <clears throat> psychic to me, um, you know, is, is a word that's been mystified, and, and so I like to demystify it, <laughs> and I demystify psychic to simply mean accelerating perception. And that means when perception begins to accelerate, meaning it begins to open up, and you begin seeing things for as they are. And this requires a certain um, shift in, um, from one type of attention to another type of attention. And typically, um, you know, the society is run by what I call the first attention, meaning it's, it's a kind of a collective mindset that um, really depends on a certain awareness that is always linked to language, always linked to thinking, always linked to the automatic assignment of meaning to whatever is perceived. So I'm calling that the first attention. And for most people, it's the only attention, that they can't pay attention without assigning meaning to something or getting into all kinds of thinking processes. The second attention is that awareness linked to presence, energy, phenomena without any assignment of meaning. It's a quality of attention that um, naturally erupts in the central nervous system under um, uh, sometimes um, a shocking episode, you know, whether it's, you know, the sudden loss of a loved one or a sudden eviction or, you know, some kind of outside shock that happens. It could be a positive shock, it could be a negative shock or a neutral shock, but some kind of shock to the system can jolt us out of that first attention and then into this more expanded attention of just being able to perceive and see things as they are, which is to say, see things as the dance of light and energy 
that quantum physics tells us, you know, might be closer to the nature of reality. Sounds like these are, uh, this is a development, is it perhaps, of uh, Carlos Castaneda's first and second attention with the uh, tonal and nagual? Yeah, using yeah. Terms Castan- not dissimilar to the way you're speaking about them. There is definitely some similarities there. Um, it's not something I've made up. Um, you know, there are a number of people that discover this uh, process, and it's not just discovering the second attention, but how the second attention and the first attention, they really need to work together. They really need to find because you can get if you get locked into the second attention, you know, living in this society that leads to a kind of psychosis or psychotic break where you're not you get so far into the second attention where you're not able to communicate with anybody anymore, and a lot of people locked away in mental institutions are suffering from second attention overdrive. Hmm. So, and it, we might say something similar of. Uh someone on an extremely strong acid trip or something like that where they may be encountering something more akin to the second attention but not necessarily provided with the means of integrating that experience back into a more mundane world. That's exactly right. And the way I've been discovering the circuits is really through um, a correspondence of anchors and shocks between upper and lower circuits. And what I mean by anchors and shocks is I believe that the lower circuits, the bottom four, really act as anchors for absorbing the shocks of the higher consciousness symbolized by the upper four circuits. So, for example, the way I see it, and I've outlined this in the book, The Eighth Circuit Brain, um, physical, the first circuit provides an anchor for fifth circuit. Second circuit, emotional intelligence, actually provides the anchor for the neuroelectric circuit. And third circuit for the seventh circuit, and the fourth circuit for the eighth circuit. And the upper circuits acts, um, you know, they represent the experiences that we have in life that um, really are um, uh, huge, large consciousness expanding experiences that sometimes can be very blissful, sometimes can be very frightening, but in, in, in any case, they force us to evolve and to grow. So the upper circuit experiences act as kind of shocks to the, to the ego, which the ego, I think, um, uh, can be represented by the uh, lower four circuits. The lower four circuits really, you know, symbolizing the development of the ego personality. And the upper circuits are there to, in a sense, continue um, catalyzing growth and evolution in those egos that want to grow. And that's a very important point, because not everybody uh, is predisposed to evolve and to grow. Some people don't want any part of it. You know, some people prefer to stay cocooned, to stay asleep, and that is their life, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. Um, and other people, you know, have a hankering to, um, you know, see what's outside of their, um, you know, little reality tunnel, you know, the local reality tunnel of their local culture or whatever, and they, you know, proceed with the experiment, but oftentimes without enough, of, uh, without enough knowledge as to how to get back and integrate into their lives. And there you have the kind of um, LSD casualties that often happen, um, you know, with people um, entering into higher consciousness experiments without the proper knowledge of how to integrate that into mundane existence, sort of like what you were talking about there. Okay, well, one one of the things that uh, interests me about performance particularly is um, the integration of these sort of higher higher states and perceptions back into the physical flesh of our bodies through action. Is this something? Is this something that sort of paratheater takes on? <clears throat> um, paratheater um, again is a kind of a tool 
for um, testing the integrity or honesty um, of your own experience and specifically testing um, the degree of um, commitment um, each of us might have to our own direct experience as a source of authority. And this is really a, a key point in the paratheater work is, is moving uh, participants towards um, a deeper trust in their own direct first-hand experience as, um, as a source of spiritual authority, but also um, a basis by which to build their own sense of autonomy and integrity on. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, many of us have been, um, you know, conditioned or programmed um, to distrust our first-hand experience. Uh, we're always second-guessing ourselves or, you know, asking other people for their opinion of what they think, what's right, what's wrong, and, you know, so forth. And we've simply lost the capacity, not just for direct experience, but trusting that as a source of authority. That's, uh, that's, that's very interesting. I'll just uh, mention that over the last three years, I've sort of moved into that field myself from looking at the world in a more magical way with, uh, from sort of textbooks and things like that, building up a symbolic uh, vocabulary and then fitting experiences to that but then sort of came a point a couple of years ago where I tipped that on the on its head and strove back for the pure experience and let it dictate what the vocabulary of symbols within my own life would would manifest as all sort of aiming for this one the the term that I was using was the pursuit of the authentic action and it sounds well like it's done. Not dissimilar to what uh, your paratheater sort of objectives are yeah it, it is it's, it's the pursuit and the achievement of authentic action, or the, I, we use the word the total act to be able to find a place right, okay. of, of being able to give of ourselves totally, meaning total commitment to whatever action we're performing, and we find that the force of our commitment to the action we're performing has a transformative effect on the instrument of the self. And so much of the work is really learning how to increase the force and heat of our commitment so that we can apply ourselves, not just in the area of paratheater, because that's just the laboratory, that's just the place where we experiment. But once we learn how to experiment with it in the lab, then we can apply it, you know, to our daily lives and, you know, move into, um, you know, more ambitious projects um, and the manifestations of visions that really require a lot of commitment to fulfill. So I think we were on the seventh circuit, uh, the yeah. neuro neurogenetic circuit, I think was the next one. Yeah, the Seventh Circuit, um, <clears throat> this is where things get start getting really genuinely weird because we're really talking about um, a kind of um, uh, link um, of the central nervous system to the DNA. <clears throat> and here we have um, the Seventh Circuit genetic or mythopoetic intelligence that um, uh, opens us up to the planetary entity, to the DNA, the language of life that links all things and it's those experiences where we come into the direct knowledge, the gnosis of being an expression of all of life. So there's no division anymore, no distinction. You see, the Sixth Circuit still has the sense of the observer and the observed. It still has a sense of, okay, there's a central nervous system ob ob observing itself. However, at the Seventh Circuit, we, we really move into the you know, uh, genetic matrix of the DNA, which manufactures the central nervous system. And we lose the previous, um, you know, so-called objectivity or division between observer and observed. And we enter that place of, of indivisibility and uh, this tremendous sense of unity with all, all, 
all living things with all life. Um, I'm going to check in a difficult question there. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, would because because we start getting very sort of conceptual in our phraseology when we talk about these um, these really quite sort of peak things. Would you be able to give us more of a, a sort of uh, I don't want to use the word grounded, but I'm going to end up using it. Oh yeah, there's, sort there's of more grounded of sort of yeah examples of uh, how yeah. this might occur. Well, on a more on the most personal level, uh, genetic intelligence is awakened um, within us um, uh, in those experiences uh, where we, you know we, we we really come to know ourselves on a deeper genetic and instinctive level as uh, belonging to a particular tribe that's indigenous to a particular bioregion. So, uh, no longer is the identity trapped within the eggshell of the individual ego, but there is now this sense of okay. Um, I'm part of whether it's the Celtic tribe or, you know, the uh, the Sami shaman tribe of of northern Scandinavia, or you know the the tribe of Tibetan Bon magic in the Himalayas, and so that there's in the Seventh Circuit a, a, an opening up to genetic identity, you know, the tribe of people that that you might have originated from um, way back when and uh, that develop their own particular rituals and customs based on a very specific bioregion and link with the planet and the planetary energies that they um, thrived in. So that's, that's one example. Another example is, is much more mundane, and it has to do with those individuals who have uh, given birth, both men and women, to children. And there is an awakening of genetic intelligence when you are looking into the eyes of your offspring that um, cannot be replicated by any other experience, that there is a link there that happens that uh, no matter, you know, if there's a divorce or whether, you know, you pass away or the child passes away, that child will always be your child. You will always be that person's parent, father, or mother. So there's that awakening of genetic intelligence through processes of childbirth. Um, and also sometimes one can experience this through one's own parents, given that we're... Um, able to see our parents beyond all the um, trappings of parental conditionings that they uh, imposed on us to try to make us into, you know, good, good children. Mm. Um, there's also um, another um, example of, of uh, kind of on a widespread level of, of kind of a, the beginning of an awakening of the Seventh Circuit on a collective level is the more recent awakening um, to the um, uh, the ecological crisis of planet Earth, mm. and so there's this you know awareness happening now that was not happening 50 years ago really. I mean it started really with um, the celebration of what's called Earth Day uh, about 40 years ago, and you know offshoots of that developed since then. But now there's just a lot more um, attention paid to you know whether it's recycling your garbage or you know, eating more healthy foods or, you know, finding ways to not damage the planet. Now, I'm not sure how much good all that's going to do, how much real change it's going to implement, but there is an awareness erupting in people um, that the planet is alive. It's not just this dirt ball spinning through space, <laughs> that there is a living entity that has incarnated as this planet. And we may not, you know, have the intellect to wrap our minds around that as a reality. We might just have to, you know, settle with the concept. But there are individuals that are, are living, I think, like, let's say, in indigenous or aboriginal tribal communities that uh, live with this as a daily reality, um, that live in the Seventh Circuit um, 
awareness of of the planet um really as an entity that has incarnated as and this it, planet and they relate to it as such this sort of uh yeah living with this awareness is as you say sort of quite distinct from uh, an intellectual conceptualization and, and oh absolutely just an, yeah as yeah, it's, it's a, an experiential thing that is felt in a non-linguistic well, any, fashion yeah any any scholar um any british scholar that you know decides to um you know take a trip down to um you know, central Australia near um, Ayers Rock and, um, you know, decides to spend uh, a full year with the Aborigines is going to find out, I'm going to find out sooner or later, you know, what we're talking about here. I seem to recall, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the artist Marina Abramovich. She, um, she went and spent, I think her and her partner went and lived for six months in the Australian outback without any clothes or anything. And uh, it's really quite fascinating her reading her sort of apparent mental decay as the intellectual su- side of life no longer became applicable. And she very much That's talks about the beginning of this sort of dream world that she was living in the dreaming, the dream yeah. time term that we know from Aborigine mythology. Yeah, it's very true, and that's the other link of the uh, Seventh Circuit is, is is our link to the dream body and the dream time, and you know, living with that as let's say even more real than our, you know, mundane daytime reality. The awareness of dreams and lucid dreaming, for example, as a process of waking up in our dreams, is a seventh circuit event. Um, <clears throat> the seventh circuit is anchored by the third circuit because. It's very easy, you know, if you're opening up the Seventh Circuit, um, unless you're grounded in Aboriginal culture because they have their own symbols to help manage, you know, they have their own symbols and art um, to manage their dreaming um, experiences. And if you're not um, able to integrate in a community that has already found their own kind of Third Circuit way of stabilizing Seventh Circuit shocks, then it's really up to the individual to um, uh, come up with and develop a certain... um, language, a certain, you know, symbology or a certain imaging or even artistic process or poetic uh, uh, to be able to um, uh, not so much categorize but to somehow, you know, give symbolic expression uh, to these um, uh, deeper genetic signals um, that the Seventh Circuit represents. And within the, in terms of dreaming, I'm uh, assuming I believe uh, the paratheater, paratheatrical material that you're working with also includes dreaming qualities, is that right? Yeah, yeah, like I mentioned, you know, the paratheater work is through that we were able to access pretty much all the circuits, all the different uh, modes of consciousness, and it all depends on the particular theme and focus of each lab, and each lab runs for, you know, anywhere from 6 to 12 weeks, you know, two times a week. So we give it a good... um, thorough run-through, um, depending on the theme. And there was, we just finished a two-year lab. Um, actually, we worked for two years on what we call the Dreaming Ritual Project, um, which was based on um, a Seventh Circuit um, uh, opening, um, enabling us to um, recall movements from dreams, uh, not images or the meanings or personages, but actual kinetic properties, as in movements that we would then replicate in our waking lives and through those replications stitch together several movements recalled from dreams into a kind of dream movement choreography that when performed while awake would then trigger 
the forces and the powers of the dreaming that those movements originated in. Release all of the anchors associated with uh, those actions in the dream. And yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and so that was something that it took a whole two years. Uh, we couldn't do that in, you know, six or 12 weeks. We really needed to go at it for a couple of years to, you know, um, uh, you know to, to do it right, really. Is this, uh, this is probably flying completely in the face of the, uh, the, the way power theatre works, but after two years of a sort of lab process like that, do you in any form sort of publish the results, and, uh, or is it purely bound to the experiences of the individuals who were undertaking um, it? I've posted um, uh, my own personal ritual lab journals um, online at paratheatrical.com, where people can, um, you know, go read them and, um, you know, see for themselves. In um, my book, Towards an Archaeology of the Soul, uh, there is a section dedicated to the dreaming ritual, and uh, also some um, uh, reports um, uh, that other people also have had uh, that are written down there for other people to read if they want. Excellent. So I think uh, before we... Actually, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about something else after this, actually, quickly, but um, I think we should probably wrap up with the last circuit, which is the uh, psychoatomic Yeah, um, I call it the um, non-local quantum circuit, and non-locality um, is that experience. This is where human experiences become the most weird of all, because we're really talking about that um, questionable link uh, between DNA and the heart of subatomic activity. Hmm. Now, we know DNA informs and manufactures central nervous systems, which in turn control the physical body and the physical body systems. But what informs and controls DNA? So there's a lot of heuristic speculation here between geneticists and physicists, and one of the ideas that are coming up is, is that, well, there's something in the heart of uh, the singularity of the atomic nucleus that actually informs and controls DNA. Uh, instrumentation hasn't developed sensitivity at this point to prove that, but these are some of the you know, kind of cutting-edge speculations about um, you know, what is it that, you know, basically controls, manages, and informs DNA. The way I look at eight-circuit experiences are basically those experiences that are clearly out of body. I look at non, I look at locality as a word to um, refer to the uh, time-space continuum that we experience through the physical instrument. As long as we're physical, um, there's time and space involved at some level. But once you're out of body, time and space completely warp, disappear, and things get genuinely weird. Hmm. And weird is a term that um, is one of many terms uh, that physicists use, um, you know, to describe some of their discoveries at the uh, subatomic level of examination. <laughs> weird is a use, word to use, um, they use to um, refer to energy in its potential state. Hmm. Energy that hasn't become anything yet. Energy that's kind of wavering on the brink of manifestation but it hasn't it's just in its potential state um, um, I've, I've seen you actually uh <clears throat> mention online before that you're and this might actually link in with what you're saying now that your some of your paratheatrical research sessions can actually induce a kind of an altered state of consciousness in the participants could you go into that a bit with us you know could you uh well th- yeah yeah the, the paratheater work certainly um triggers altered states uh that's just 
an inevitable outcome. Um, uh, for some people, it's the reason why they do it. You know, they do it to get high, so they have a hedonic reason. But typically, after a half a dozen sessions, the hedonic reason, um, you know, will tend to um, disperse or they'll become bored. Um, and so that there's a number of different reasons to enter paratheater work besides triggering altered states. But yes, it definitely does that. Um, one more thing I wanted to add about the um, Eighth Circuit experience, and it has to do with, um, you know, what Zen, you know, Buddhism refers to um, uh, as um, uh, the fertile void. And on a human experience, it really taps into um, that part of ourselves that is maybe comfortable with being nobody. And so, you know, we live primarily in the Western world in a void, ignorant culture, a void, ignorant culture um, that places a lot of status on becoming somebody. And what this does is it inhibits an essential uh, quality of our nature that um, is formless, that part of us which exists as potential energy, that part of us that um, if we were to, how were to personify it as, okay, a character, or, you know, it would be the nameless person, the nobody. And so the Eighth Circuit, again, you know, I'm here obviously struggling with words and language because it's, it's a genuinely weird place, um, yeah. <laughs> what, what it represents. Uh, I mean, how can you talk about the void? I mean, that's yeah. one of the most <laughs> silly and pointless things to talk about that I can, you know, think of. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, those people that come into Eighth Circuit experiences, it's not that they just experience the void. They experience themselves as an expression of the void. Mm. So, this, would know, this be a sort of the, the void that is capable of taking taking form at any one instance, suiting that instance before returning back to the void again. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, again, it's, it's a genuinely weird place. Um, uh, you know, this, the possibility of being nothing or some intimacy with void. And, you know, the Buddhists, they refer to the fertile void as, as, as true nature. Hmm. Can you, you know, the face behind our face. I don't know how... Something that I really wanted to ask you about was uh, the Zazen meditation. Is this, uh, I mean, that sounds like an Eastern practice of sorts. Is this tied in with that sort of thing? Um, it can be. In uh, the paratheater work, um, uh, we implement um, a principle of Zazen in what we call, uh, uh, the technique is called no form. And we implement the technique of no form, which is a process of cultivating profound internal receptivity through a standing position and then also a walking position. Now, in traditional zazen, um, you sit, and you just sit and you sit, and it doesn't go anywhere beyond sitting. You just sit. So it's a physically passive um, state that you enter. Whatever happens, you remain physically passive. We apply that to action. So we enter the no-form process for the purpose of cultivating that internal receptivity as a bridge, as a tool, not as an end in itself. We're not trying to achieve some kind of enlightenment or samadhi here. We're really using Zazen as a tool to cultivate the internal receptivity to sources of energy in our own bodies, forces, currents, qualities, and states of energy within our own body. So that as we cultivate this internal receptivity through the technique of no form, we can then begin tapping into those 
currents, those energies in the body itself as movement resources so that we really subject ourselves to the energies within our own body and allow them to move us and move towards a kind of convulsive or spontaneous expression of energies embedded in the body itself, in the muscles, in the cells, in the organs, expressing outward through action, movement, sound, gesture, sometimes characterization and story. It's all in the body. It's all contained in the mystery of the organism. Are these, uh, these expressions that you're referring to, are they, are they the ends in themselves, or are the expressions uh, a vehicle oh, no. for a future action? Yeah, well, what I just, just uh, explained there is the very beginning stages. Yeah. And the beginning stages are um, necessarily uh, messy, they're chaotic, uh, very unpredictable, sometimes loud, and yet very essential to tap into the stream of impulses and the sources of energy in their most vital, unpredictable, chaotic state so that you have something to work with. And once you have something to work with, then at that point you move into the next stages, which is to begin applying a little more precision, a little more awareness, but doing so in such a way as to not to kill the spirit, to not, you know, um, strangle or... Um, uh, inhibit too much uh, the sources of vitality that you're working with. Um, you know, too much form, you know, too much imposed structure kills the spirit. Sure. And uh, too much spirit, too much of that chaos, just turns everything into a soup. Hmm. And so, so it's really, uh, the work is really um, cultivating a kind of dynamic tension between spontaneity and precision. Is that is that sort of uh, the heart of the matter? Then that's that uh, tension between spontaneity and precision. It it is in some ways, and you know this is again um, referring to the very fundamentals. And then once once people have uh, gone through the initial training and have developed a certain adeptness um, with this process, then from there it can move into possible um, uh, performance vehicles. Um, where we may um, introduce a particular song structure or a poetic text, um, you know, or other, you know, kind of seed visions that we develop over a period of, you know, several months before we bring it into performance. But like I said at the beginning, um, most of our work is done behind closed doors without an audience. And, you know, maybe every three or four years we, we you know, open the doors and bring people in to um, show them what, um, you know, what we've been working on. Okay, um, I think it's quite clear that we're going to have to have you back on the show and talk to you about this a bit more in the future, uh, in the near future, I hope, as well. Um, but one thing, if people want to kind of get involved in uh, paratheatre or at least just find out some information about how they could possibly get involved or, uh, you know, how, you know, just to basically get a bit more um, insight, I suppose, where should, we, where should we send them on the web? Um, well, you, cer- you certainly can come to my website at um, paratheatrical.com. But also, I would um, suggest you know putting into Google the word paratheater or paratheatrical because there are a number of different um, groups and outfits in um, in Europe and in England. Um, uh, Jessica Bachler out of uh, Liverpool is also running some work. She was uh, working with me over here in Berkeley, so she's a former um, student of mine. And um, even though there are a number of people that call what they do paratheater there's also going to be differences of style and, you know, what that word actually means. But that's where I would start. I would just start, you know, 
investigating the word paratheater and paratheatrical and doing as much reading on you know the the different versions and visions of what that word might mean and you know that way people can get a little more acquainted with the particular style that might suit them i think that's one of the uh, really greatest things that i've uh, read about your stuff and then hearing you say it as well is the the fact that you're not yourself being precious and clinging to this term and you are encouraging people you you know using the term laboratory just as grotowski did you know the, that it is a well, yeah. experimental field yeah. and can yeah, the encouragement that that there are other groups out there that may be engaged in not quite the same thing but similar things and this sort of umbrella term paratheater that's uh, it's a good it's a good attitude to be presenting certainly well, it's, it's, it's also uh it's not entirely altruistic you know i understand that i <laughs> okay. i can only um experience as much autonomy in my own life as i can allow others hmm. That's a very and, fair point. Fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, freedom, freedom is very important to me, and, mm. and, you know, real freedom, true freedom, not just, you know, the kind of consumerist freedom of being able to do whatever you want just because you want to do it, because mm. um, you have money or whatever. Um, and also integrity means a lot to me, and I'm, I'm only, I can only commit to my integrity if I'm also committing to the integrity of others. Yeah. Well, and Terry, man, thanks a lot for coming on and uh, giving us some of your time. We're definitely going to have to get you back on because I think we've got a whole ton of stuff we can cover with you <laughs> um but oh yeah. yeah do you think you have enough information yeah yeah <laughs> I, think we can, <laughs> so I think we get started with that at least <laughs> something to sink the teeth into thank you it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you Heroes number 18 with me, Daddy Tank. Uh, this time around we have uh, perhaps contraption with hard cutlery, uh, heat from a dead star with seahorse sea fish, and haunted stereo with lock the doors. <laughs>
And we're back. Thanks again to Daddy Tank for another classic uh, MySpace Heroes there. Um, so, Ulysses, what did you think of uh, Mr. Mr. Ali? Well, he's, uh, he's, he's a very nice guy, isn't he? He was yeah. uh, very forward, telling us uh, exactly what he thinks about uh, subjects like the 8th Circuit model. But we only really got to touch very basically on his subjects of power theatre and the uh, implications for human development um, that he was presenting. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, I think this is... Uh Definitely going to be a, a a person we have back on the show to probe further about these. T- uh, subjects. I, would, I would certainly very l- much like to hear a bit more about what he has to say because uh, I think he's he's able to offer us something, um, and perhaps other people are as well, that comes from slightly left field for those of us that are of a magical inclination. Some give us some food for thought that is not quite as I was saying earlier, straight from textbooks of cabalistic correspondence and things, and bo- really boils down to what do we actually do mm. and uh, and the means by which we're going to do it. I think one thing we always talk about on the show when we have more magically inclined people on is that this kind of worry about, say, secret societies like the ATO, for example, Golden Dawn, uh, and their, you know, their secrets being leaked out, but actually what the real kind of... Uh, the real joy of that kind of uh, order is the initiation, the experience of the initiation itself, and in that in that sense, that kind of well, this is this is this is very much so, and I think it's something that Antonio Ali didn't really get a chance to speak about, perhaps because there wasn't the time, we didn't have the uh, room to do it. But the subject of self-initiation and this idea that uh, most of us, uh, as individuals going about our lives, can find means by which we will ourselves become self-initiated into these things that doesn't necessarily require participation in magical orders although they do have their place yeah definitely well i really enjoyed it and thanks for uh, coming and joining us today. it's been great fun thank you very much have to have you back on as a co-host uh if you want to get in contact with me or you know uh, anyone involved in the site you can contact me at ken at you can find out probably more promptly uh, about stuff we're doing via twitter at uh, twitter.com slash sitting now myspace.com slash sitting now uh we're going to set up a facebook page eventually uh just haven't bothered yet really <laughs> but yeah uh, come to the site and check out the stuff we have there we're gonna like i said we're gonna be launching a tv show if you're subscribing for itunes you'll get the first two episodes of that uh but we're going to set up a new feed for that um, there'll be an episode of Behind Closed Doors following this one as well so uh, yeah um, hopefully we'll be get- I always say this but hopefully we will be getting some more podcasts out but it's just trying to keep the, the calibre of uh, guests up as it were you're off to a rolling start yeah I think yeah, it certainly was a good episode but yeah thanks for uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you guys I won't say next week but as soon as possible <laughs> okay, thanks a lot